0: Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Mr Brian Clegg will explore where the idea of infinity originated and who the people who defined and refined this paradoxical quantity were. This lecture promises an exploration of the most mind-boggling features of maths and physics. No end of people delight in telling me that infinity is a very big subject. And so I I really want to ease into it gently by thinking a little bit about large numbers. Um, When you do think about large numbers, um, if you can somehow tame them, name them, you get control over them. Some people almost get a sense of power out of being able to name large numbers. And frankly, if you get big enough numbers, giving them a name often is about the only value really they have. So when you come to a number like this one, Um, actually giving a name to it uh, is frankly one of its few values, uh, as was discovered by the unfortunate major Charles Ingram, who I don't even remember, a few years ago was on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And his million pound question was to name this number, one with a hundred zeros after it. Uh, And he was given a choice of four, as you do on the program. It could have either been a Google, a Megatron, a Gigabit, or a Nanomole. And he rather fancied Nanamol uh, until a sort of strange cough from the audience suggested to him that perhaps he ought to go for Google. Um, and it's not frankly surprising that he did not recognize that you would name a number at Google because, frankly, it's a rather silly sounding name. It's a childish name, and that's not at all surprising uh, because it was actually given its name by a child. Uh, according to mathematical legend, in 1938, uh, an American mathematician called Ed Kasner... Was working at home on his blackboard, the only bit of technology mathematicians had back then. Um, And he apparently wrote this number up on his blackboard. And his little nephew, Milton Sorota, who was nine at the time, saw this number and allegedly said, Ooh, that looks like a Google. Except he said it with an American accent, which I can't do. The fact is, I think this is rubbish. I think it is extremely unlikely that any mathematician worth his salt would consider writing this number up on the blackboard. Why would he possibly want to do it? I think it's much more likely he just asked his little nephew, what would you call a really, really big number? And little Milton said, a Google. And that's apparently how it got its name. This this urge to give names to big numbers goes back an awful lot further than 1938. Uh, Certainly back as far as Archimedes um, who was born around 287 BC. Uh, and in one rather strange little book, Archimedes set out to deal with big numbers, so specifically set out to deal with counting how many grains of sand it would take to fill the universe. Um, it, the book's called The Sand Reckoner, and at the start of the book, which is dedicated to King Gelon of Syracuse, um, Archimedes says uh, uh, to the king, basically... Uh, Lots of people out there think that the number of grains of sand on the beaches are infinite, or at least uncountable. Well, I'm going to show you that actually you can go a lot further than that, and imagine filling the entire universe with sand, and I'll tell you how many grains of sand it would take. Now, we have to be a little bit careful when we talk about filling the universe, because Archimedes, of course, had a very different view of the universe to our own. Uh, His was something like this. I have to apologize for the fact I didn't notice until after I put it together that the graphic had a moving Earth. The Earth should actually be still and fixed at the center of the universe rather than moving, so I'm sorry for that. But basically, we've got the Earth at the center, then there's the moon and the sun and the planets going around the Earth, and at the outside, roughly where that yellow circle is, uh, we've got the stars, and that's it. That's the universe, something about the size of our current solar system, and that's what Archimedes was going to set out to fill with sand. Still quite a dramatic proposition. Uh, In fact, interestingly, he goes one step further. Um, He says uh, there's this little book around at the moment uh, from somebody called Aristarchus that has this weird theory that the uh, earth goes around the sun rather than the sun going around the earth. Um, And Archimedes says, I'll I'll work out how big that universe would be and how many grains of sand that would take as well. And it's intriguing because that's the only reference we actually have uh, to Aristarchus saying that the Earth goes around the Sun, uh, from this side comment from uh, Archimedes. So he starts off, he makes a few assumptions, like the Earth's bigger than the Moon, the Sun's bigger than the Earth, does a bit of fancy geometry, let's face it, he's an ancient Greek, he is going to do geometry, um, and works out that the universe is about 10 billion star days across, um, and that star days are basically measures based on the length of a running track in a stadium. Rather, as we estimate distances, say, in football pitches or cricket pitches these days, their standard sort of estimating distance was star days. The uh, the only problem is we don't know exactly how big a star day is because there were several different definitions depending upon which running track you were using. Um, But a a good average is about 180 metres. And if we go for that, that makes the universe 1,800 million kilometres across, which is just outside the orbit of Saturn. So actually, it's not a bad guess for the size of the universe considering, you know, the very crude approximations that he was making. And then he started working up and said, OK, I can get a few grains of sand into a poppy seed, uh, a few poppy seeds into a very, very small teeny pebble, a teeny, several teeny pebbles in a big one, and so on, and worked his way up uh, until he got, decided how many he used to fill the universe. But there was a problem, and this is why the naming of big numbers comes back in, because the biggest number in the Greek number system at the time, was a myriad, 10,000. That was it. That was where it stopped. You could have a myriad myriads, admittedly. So you could have a 100 million, but that was about your limit. Uh, And really, of course, what Archimedes was not doing, actually, it was worrying about how many grains of sand it would take to fill the universe. What he was doing was demonstrated that you could extend the number system indefinitely. So he set up a system where a myriad myriads, a 100 million, was the starting point. Um, And he called that uh, the first order. Then he multiplied by itself, so 100 million times 100 million, called that the second order. He did it again, the third order, and so on, until he'd done it a myriad, myriad times, and then he called that the first period and started all over again. So he had this massive sort of superstructure built on myriads to get numbers bigger and bigger. And he worked out little modern maths to decide how you would use these, uh, these orders, and from that, decided that it would um, take 1,000 units of the 7th order, which is basically 10 to the 51. So one with 51 zeros after it, grains of sand to fill the universe. Or if you went for Aristarchus' universe with the sun at the middle, which you reckon would be a bit bigger, uh, he made that uh, about 10 to the 63 grains of sand. Uh, so a fair number, but he'd obviously only scratched the surface of his system. And the fact is the Greeks were aware that something seemed to go on forever. Uh, if you think of the very simple idea of the counting numbers, the integers, one, two, three, four, five, uh, anybody who's had small children has probably had them starting to count and go up and up and try to get to the end, sort of thing, and you can't. There just isn't an end. If there was a biggest number, uh, say max, then you could just have max plus one and max plus two. You just can't stop it. It goes on forever. And that, interesting, but relatively harmless, until you start playing around with these sequences of numbers and particularly start adding them together. And very soon you discover some rather worrying things happen. So if you take a very simple series like this one, um, basically what I'm doing is writing down forever, 1, minus 1, plus 1, minus 1, plus 1, minus 1, just going on off all the way to infinity, um, I can very easily work out how much that adds up to just by putting brackets around the pairs of 1's and 1's. Each cancels the other out, and the result is 0, which is simple. Straightforward until you move those brackets along one. And then what you get is effectively exactly the same thing. You've got pairs of ones and minus ones, but you've got one left over. So exactly the same sequence of numbers adds, both adds up to zero and to one, which is a little distressing. Um, there is an alternative formulation for this, which is basically if you've got a light bulb and turn the light on and off an infinite set of times, is it on or is it off? Uh, and this clearly was posited by a mathematician, because any physicist will tell you it'll be off, because it'll be blown after you've turned it on and off <laughs> a few thousand times. But in theory, with, with a mathematical light bulb that can go on forever, then yes, this is both on and off at the same time. I'm not sure if the Greeks actually were aware of this one, but one they certainly did know about was another simple series uh, where you basically add in fractions, each of which is half the size of the previous one. So... That set is one and seven eighths, so then add in one sixteenth, take it up to one and fifteen sixteenths, I add in a 30 and carry on indefinitely. And basically what's happening is I'm getting closer and closer to two. And if it's somehow I could have the whole infinite set of fractions, it should add up to two. It's heading towards two as a value. And I have to say, when I came across this first uh, at school, the idea that you could have a whole infinite set of things, each of which has a finite size, and yet the whole thing only adds up to a tiny value to two. I I was quite confused by it. Um, And the Greeks, some of the Greeks, did have problems with this concept. Uh, In fact, it's the basis of one of Zeno's famous paradoxes. For Zeno, we're going back a fair way um, behind Archimedes. He was born around 539 BC, and he belonged to a school that believed that all movement and change was illusion that there was no such thing as movement or change. It was all an illusion. Uh, And his paradoxes were set up to demonstrate that there's actually something confusing and wrong about movement. Um, And the one that's particularly of interest to us today involves uh, two characters. Um, We've got a tortoise and we've got Achilles. And they're going to have a race. Now, Achilles is a hero. And being a hero, he lets the tortoise have a bit of a lead because he knows it's pretty slow. Uh, So the tortoise sets off, and after a little while, Achilles sets off after it. And very soon he gets to the point where the tortoise has got to, but by the time he gets there, the tortoise has moved on. That's no problem, because of course you can cover that gap very quickly, but by the time he gets there, the tortoise has moved on. And what Zeno said was basically he will never catch the tortoise, because every time he gets to the point where the tortoise was, the tortoise has already moved on. Uh, And the catch in this is basically he's dealing with something like my series of one plus a half plus quarter of an eighth and so on. Uh, So basically, it it will add up to a finite value, and at that point, he will zoom past it. In practice, it won't be one plus a half because the tortoise will be going—not be going—he's not going twice as fast as the tortoise. He's going significantly faster than that, so he'll make, make it even quicker. But the fact is, he will catch it up because of the way this infinite series can result in a finite value. There's something a little bit unsettling about this whole thing. As I say, certainly when I first came across it at school, I I find it worrying. It's one of the reasons I wanted to write a book about infinity, was to find out more about what was going on. Uh, And the Greeks, in their word for infinity, they called it a peron. Excuse my pronunciation, I didn't do Greek at school, so if that's wrong, apologies, but roughly a peron. And that word had negative connotations, a bit like like chaos does today. a pearon was unbounded, it was uncontrolled, it was dangerous. That was what infinity was like. And the man who basically took it in hand and sorted it out was arguably the most famous of the, certainly one of the most famous of the Greek philosophers, Aristotle. Um, we've jumped forward a little bit now back to 384 BC. He was born in Stigiris. And Aristotle went to um, Plato's academy which uh, wasn't just any old academy like the one that might be down the road these days. This was the academy uh, because it was basically a school set up uh, in the grove of trees belonging to somebody called Academos, Uh, hence the rather twee expression, the groves of academe. Um, And this, this is where Aristotle got his early learning, and he was, of course, a great philosopher. I have to say, as an aside, he was a hopeless scientist. Almost everything Aristotle ever said about science was wrong, Uh, but that's the context of the way people thought about things in those days. I mean, just as an example, Aristotle said that women had fewer teeth than men. Um, Nobody bothered to check, they just took it, because it was Aristotle, must be right, and for literally hundreds of years they believed that women had fewer teeth than men. Nobody bothered to count and find out. Um, It was basically the way philosophy was done. You sat down, you thought about it, you argued, and the best argument won. And in the classic armchair musing fashion, Aristotle got to work on infinity and he decided infinity had to exist. And the reason it had to exist, he he gave a few. He thought that time had no beginning or end. Uh, He thought that space could be divided up forever and ever. He wasn't an atomist. He thought you could cut it up as much as you you like. Um, So it did exist. But on the other hand, he also decided that infinity didn't exist and his arguments for it not existing are a little more obscure. The, the simplest one was to say, um, imagine an infinite... If, if infinity does exist, imagine I've got an infinite object. What is its boundaries? Because the definition of infinity is there are no boundaries, but the definition of object is its boundaries. So you can't have an infinite object. It can't exist. That, that was his simplest argument to say it didn't exist. And being a philosopher, he managed to cope with the fact he proved that it both did exist and didn't exist and decided that you couldn't actually have an infinite object, but infinity had the potential to be. He called it a potential. Um, And if this is a bit difficult to grasp, he actually came up with a very good example of what he meant by a potential that works very well even today. What he said was, think of the Olympic Games. Uh, Imagine that a little green man comes down in a flying saucer. Well, actually, that's my addition. But imagine a little green man comes down in a flying saucer and (coughs) says... um, Do the Olympic Games exist? You would say, of course they do. You know, ridiculous question. Of course the Olympic Games exist. And the green man says to you, OK, show me these Olympic Games of which you speak. And you can't. I can't point to the Olympic Games. If I'd been in London last year at the right place, I could have done. But on the whole, I can't actually show you the Olympic Games. They're a potential. They don't actually really exist, but yet they do exist. And he said, infinity is very much like that. It's a potential. It's something I can't point to, but does nonetheless exist. I ought to say before I leave the ancient Greeks that when we look back at them and the way they worked, it's easy to misunderstand what was going on in their heads because they thought very visually. This is why they were so into geometry. Um, They didn't do mathematics the way we do, and that can lead to confusion. So, for instance, what we would now do as algebra, and consider quite simple, unless you found algebra uh, painful, they would have serious problems with. So if, for instance, you had an incredibly trivial Equation like this, the Greek equivalent of this equation would be the A and the B taken together equal to the B and the Z taken together, all written out in text without any spaces because they didn't bother with spaces. And frankly, doing arithmetic with that would be a bit fiddly, to say the least. It just wasn't practical. Um, And uh, another problem was uh, that they didn't deal with fractions in the same way we do. Uh, They did have fractions, but instead of saying the half, a half of something, they said the second part. And they actually were thinking of something totally different. Where we think of a half as being something cut in two, they actually thought of a second part as something that would fit into something else twice. So they've got a whole thing that fits into something else twice. It's a sort of inversion of the way we look at fractions. And interestingly, this visual approach can be useful when you look at something like that infinite series of one plus a half plus a quarter plus an eighth. Because the way the Greeks would have seen it is think of a box that's this sort of size, and what I'm going to do is put in a unit object, what a size 1, and then I'm going to put in an object that's half, and then a quarter, and then an eighth, and then a sixteenth, and so on. And I think it's actually much more obvious visually that this is never going to get past 2 than it is when you write down the equation, 1 plus half plus quarter plus an eighth, which it isn't obvious, isn't going to go past 2. So in some ways that visual approach was helpful. Uh, but even so, there were some visually derived fractions the Greeks had real problems with. Uh, and there's no better example of that than the affair of Pythagoras and the diagonal of the square. Uh, Pythagoras, we're jumping back again in time. This is my last jump about. I'll head forwards from now on. Uh, Pythagoras, uh, circa 569 BC, uh, had a school that worked on whole numbers, the whole the picture of the universe was very much built on whole numbers. Uh, They actually gave meaning to the numbers. So they said the odd numbers were male, the even numbers were female, each number from one to ten had a very specific meaning. They thought the whole universe was built on these numbers. They did allow fractions. You could divide one number by another, but as long as you were always dealing with whole numbers. And yet they had a serious problem when they started looking at the diagonal of a square. Uh, I've drawn a very simple square here, one on each side, and we're going to use Pythagoras' very own theorem to work out how big the diagonal is. Um, So it's very simple. If you remember, you just multiply the sides by themselves. One, one is one. I can do that. Uh, Same on the other sides. I've got one and one to add together. I can manage that as well. Uh, So I get two, and all I need to do to find out the diagonal is find what do I have to multiply by itself to get two. What's the square root of two? What number multiplied by itself makes 2? Um, and they said, fine, of course, you know, it's going to be a ratio of two numbers. Uh, we can cope with that. Now, it's clearly not 1. 1's 1 is 1. It's not 2 because two twos are 4. It's something in between. But actually, with a relatively small amount of logic, I'm not going to go into it now, but it only takes about a page of working out, you can prove that there is no number, no pair of whole numbers, one divided by another, which is the square root of 2. It literally isn't one whole number divided by another. It's something else. It's something we would represent as a decimal. It's what is now called irrational, not because it's uh, inexplicable, but just because it's not a ratio of two whole numbers. And Pythagoras and his friends really didn't like that. Uh, In fact, according to legend, such was their horror that when one of their number uh, called Hipparsus went out and told the world uh, about this thing, they took him out of a boat, in a boat and drowned him for daring to say that something in the universe was not based on whole numbers. Um, there also are, of course, of another number uh, that is equally troubling, which is the ratio of the diameter of a circle um, to its circumference, which we would now call pi pi. Uh, and again is a number that isn't a ratio of two whole numbers. In fact, pi is even worse. Luckily, they didn't realise or they'd really get upset back then. Uh, pi is even worse than the square root of 2 because not only is it not a ratio of two whole numbers, so it's, it's irrational, but also you can't represent it uh, with any finite equation, uh, which you can do with the square root of 2. Uh, so it's what's called transcendental, which basically means that you can't represent it with all those equations. So it's even weirder as far from the ancient Greek viewpoint But luckily, they didn't realize. Now, like so many things at the time, what the ancient Greeks said was taken as gospel all the way through, really, until the Renaissance. Uh, And Galileo was probably the next person to give any serious thought to infinity after the ancient Greeks. He was born in 1564, son of a musician who was also a bit of a mathematical dabbler. Um, And Galileo was certainly pretty remarkable. I guess he's probably uh, best remembered for two things, uh, for dropping balls off the Leaning Tower of Pisa to demonstrate big ones fell at the same rate of little ones. Uh, All the evidence is he never did this. Um, The only reference to it that exists is that one of his assistants wrote about it uh, when Galileo was very old. Now, Galileo was a great self-publicist. He spent his whole career telling the world about how wonderful he was. The fact he never mentioned it Seems pretty likely he never did it, and that's the general feeling is he never did it. But he certainly did experiments that came up with that result, but he didn't drop the balls off the Leaning Tower of Pisa. But what he certainly did do, of course, was go to court, tried for daring to suggest, as Copernicus had before him, uh, and as Aristarchus had an awful long time before him, that the earth went round the sun rather than the sun going round the earth. And it was while he was on house arrest after his trial that he wrote his greatest book, uh, frankly, his work on the, on the, on the, uh, the earth going around the sun was not novel. But the stuff he did in physics was incredibly new and exciting. He wrote a book called Discourses and Mathematical Demonstrations, uh, concerning two new sciences. And it has lots of amazing new science in it as far as they were concerned back then. Um, and when he wrote this book, he couldn't get it published. The, the Inquisition were not entirely happy about him writing another book. And so he managed to slip it out, and it was published by Elsevier, uh, the Dutch publisher, which is still going. Um, and uh, it's, rather, it's rather charming, actually, at the start of this book, which is actually very readable. It really is popular science. Uh, it's very readable. You can, it's worth getting a copy. At the start of the book, he's got this lovely little introduction where he says, uh, I actually never intended this book to be published. I just, I just thought I'd hand it to a few friends. I've <laughs> no idea how it got published. And you think, yes, right, okay. But uh, apparently he got away with it. Uh, that he didn't get in any more trouble over it. And the book is in the form of a discussion, uh, hence the discourse. It's, between, it's a discussion between three people. Who, and they spend most of the time, uh, over three days I think it is roughly, um, discussing different aspects of physics. Uh, and at one point they say, okay, just for a break, break just to you know, have a little bit of a rest from all this heavy-duty stuff, let's talk about infinity, And there's there's a few pages where he goes into infinity. Um, And the interesting thing is, once he does this, that he really finds one of his characters can't cope. One of his characters is called Simplicio. And Simplicio's job is basically to say, duh, I don't understand this, so that the other two people can explain it to him. And essentially, Simplicio is the reason why Galileo got tried over his first book, because... Uh, it wasn't actually that he wrote about the earth going around the sun. That was accepted. It was passed by the the Inquisition. as okay. Provided he put a bit at the end that said, uh, but of course this is just a theory. Um, You know, it's not really true. It's just an interesting theory. Uh, And the trouble was, these words, which were effectively the words of the Pope, he put in the voice of Simplicio. So basically the idiot said at the end, well, this isn't true, you know. Uh, and that's actually the reason he was tried, not not for, for, for writing the book in the first place. So here we've got Simplicio, and they've been talking about infinity. And he said, I can't cope with this. I, I don't understand. Uh, and the others, rather helpfully, said, well, that's because you've got a finite mind. How can you expect a finite mind to deal with the infinite? But even so, we'll try. We'll try to help you. And they say to him, do you know about squares of numbers, not multiplying a whole number by itself? Yes, says Simplicio, I, I know about squares. Uh, each number has a square, doesn't it? Yes, so one has a square of one, two has a square of four. Every single integer has a square. There's a square for each integer. integer. Yes, simplicity, simplicity, I can cope with that. Okay, so the rest, what about these numbers? Because basically, there are an awful lot of integers that aren't themselves squares. So basically, we've got more integers than we have squares, and yet, there is a square for every single integer. So there are as many integers as there are squares, and yet there are also many more integers than there are squares. How can this be possible? And Simplicio's head is about to explode, and what they explain to him is you can't apply the ordinary rules of arithmetic to infinity. And this is really the first time anybody had realized that. It's different. The ordinary rules don't apply when you're dealing with infinity. Um, And Galileo was really quite ahead of his time. Nobody else was really thinking about infinity in this way, and they wouldn't really until the 19th century. Um, And we'll come back to that. But we have to take a little sideline into Aristotle's potential infinity, because the next generation along, that was going to become very important in what you might refer to as the Fluxion Wars. Uh, And these are going to involve three big characters, the first of whom I guess is one of the most famous scientists ever, Isaac Newton. And it was once in 1642. I'm sure I don't have to tell you, he was a bit of an achiever. Um, you know, when they had to go away from Cambridge because of the plague, uh, in his early 20s, he went home for two years. And during that time, he sorted out his ideas on light and colour, planetary motion, um, on uh, basic laws of, of physics, uh, of, of mechanics, um, on, um, and also produced a special kind of maths to deal with all this stuff. So he did an awful lot. In those couple of years. And the mathematical trick he came up with made use of infinity. And it was called the method of fluxions. And it did something very important. It helped you deal with things like acceleration, which were difficult to handle. And just to demonstrate how the method of fluxions works, because you probably didn't do it at school, uh, imagine we've got a car that uh, is going off and it's accelerating uh, at a certain rate And we want to work out from the way its speed changes, how its acceleration, because all acceleration is, is how quickly the speed changes. Um, And let's imagine that the speed changes like this. So basically it goes up in a nice straight line against time. Then it's very easy to work out what the acceleration is. You don't need any fancy methods for that. You just say, how much has the speed changed in a certain amount of time? Divide one by the other, and that's your acceleration. It's very easy if you've got a straight line. But what Newton wanted to do was handle something like this, where the speed was not changing in a handy, easy to manage straight line. And he had a cunning idea. He thought if you look at that curve and you zoom in on it into a tiny bit of that curve, then it's almost straight, much closer to straight than the curve itself. Um, And what he thought was, if you get a tiny enough bit of that curve, then I can do what I did before. I can take the change in speed, divide it by the change in time, and get the acceleration. And if I make that bit smaller and smaller and smaller until it pretty well disappears away, then I'll get it just right. And that thing was a fluxion, and it was flowing away, disappearing away, and it worked. But, unfortunately, Newton was a very strange man, to say the least... And although he came up with this in his 20s, he, he didn't write about it for tens of years, uh, this technique. He didn't totally ignore it. He wrote, talk, talked to some friends about it, and he wrote a little about it to another mathematician um, in Germany, somebody called Gottfried Wilhelm von Leibniz. Uh, Leibniz was arguably a greater mathematician than Newton. Not as good a physicist, but a greater mathematician. And Newton wrote this to him to explain fluxions which, as you can see, just explains it all, really. Um, (laughs) This was actually quite a common uh, approach at the time. If you had something that you wanted to prove precedence, that you thought of it first, um, but you didn't want to actually give it away, what you would do is write down a summary of your idea. I have to say his summary was very vague. This is what he actually wrote down, Um, which, frankly, I don't think is awfully informative, but he felt that was enough to explain what he was doing. Uh, But he actually wrote it in Latin, uh, so he wrote this, and that all, all you do is just count how many le- of each of the letters there are. So that's just saying there are six A's, two C's, one D, and so on, through the letters uh, in that statement. And he sent this off to Leibniz. Now, a little while later, longer before Newton published his method of fluxions, Leibniz came up with his own method for dealing with exactly the same problem. Um, He didn't just write a few letters to Newton, he came up with his method. And his method he called calculus, uh, which you're more likely to have heard of than the method of fluxions. And he used this notation that's still used in calculus today. Newton didn't. Um, It was exactly the same thing. It was just approaching it from a a slightly different way. Now, Newton did not like competition, to put it mildly. He was furious, he was incandescent. He accused Leibniz (laughs) of plagiarism. He said he had stolen his ideas. Of course, he did it in the very sort of cold and careful and polite way uh, of the time. But nonetheless, he said that he had the idea first and Leibniz had stolen it. Um, He actually got somebody to write a paper at the Royal Society effectively saying this. Now, Leibniz was not happy, as you might imagine. He was a fellow of the Royal Society. He complained. Uh, and he said he wanted it investigated. And so the Royal Society set up a commission of 11 men to decide who had priority, who came up with the idea first. And it was considered so important that the president of the Royal Society himself wrote the report uh, that vindicated Newton and said that Newton had come up with the idea first. And somebody in the audience certainly knows the interesting point of this, I can tell, uh, which is uh, this was not totally surprising because the president of the Royal Society was, of course, Sir Isaac Newton. So basically he wrote his own report saying that he had come up with the idea first. Uh, and this sounds funny, it sounds trivial, but actually there was a rift between British and American, math- uh, British and European mathematicians that lasted about 100 years as a result of this argument between these two, who, uh, who came up with the idea first, and also, frankly, because Newton was so sneaky about it. But impressive, though, this argument was, I said there were three people involved, uh, and the third person is quite interesting as well. Here's Bishop George Berkeley, um, who was well-known uh, as a philosopher, and... Uh, quite a character, actually. He was, we think of a bishop possibly a bit a bit old and fusty. He was actually a lot younger than Newton uh, and had had quite an interesting life. He'd been out to America, tried to set up a school uh, in the West Indies. He'd done all sorts of interesting things. Um, and he was not happy about calculus. And he wrote uh, a wonderful attack on calculus called The Analyst, A Discourse Addressed to an Infidel Mathematician. Now, the infidel mathematician in question was actually not Newton or Leibniz. It was Edmund Halley, uh, the discoverer of the famous comet. Uh, and Halley, uh, who was both astronomer royal and the civilian professor of geometry at Oxford, um, had really upset Bishop Berkeley because he was an atheist and he had persuaded one of Berkeley's friends to renounce Christianity on his deathbed. And Berkeley would not it, forgive him for this. And so he set out to find some way of getting at him. And the thing was that Halley was a huge supporter of Newton. Uh, He'd paid for Newton's great work, The Principia, to be published. You know, he he really was very much in the Newton camp. And so by attacking Halley, he could attack Newton and his his ideas, or vice versa. Uh, And he set out to show there was something seriously wrong with the method of fluxions and with calculus, uh, and he came up with this rather nice expression. He referred to these things that, you remember, they, they made, basically made it smaller and smaller and smaller until it pretty well disappeared away. He calls those the ghosts of dis- departed quantities. The ghosts of departed quantities. And um, he said, frankly, that that was ludicrous. You know, that um, Halley got at him because he took stuff on faith. But how could you do maths with ghosts of departed quantities? That was ridiculous. Uh, and actually, he was not just sort of um, talking on his soapbox. There was a real problem with calculus or the method of fluxions. Uh, now I didn't want to put any equations uh, in this talk, um, but there's one little one I'm going to use, very tiny one. Uh, I, I just imagine we've got a circumstance where we've got something accelerating away and its speed is just the square of the time that has gone past. Um, so a very simple relationship between the speed and the time that's gone past and that uh, giving us the acceleration. Um, And what I want you to... uh, Sorry, we were going to work out the acceleration, given that relationship between speed and the time that's gone past. Now, using the method of fluxions, um, Newton would come up with a version of that that looks a bit like this, where these little sort of squashed O's are his his things that are getting smaller and smaller and disappearing away, his fluxions. Uh, And what he would do is, okay, we would get to this version of the equation, and then he would say, okay, what we'll do, we'll just um, cancel out the uh, fluxions top and bottom, Uh, that leaves us with this, and then what I'm going to do is remember to make it smaller and smaller and smaller till it disappears away, and once it has disappeared away I find the acceleration is two times time. And anybody who did uh, differential calculus at school may well remember that uh, if you differentiate time squared you get two times time, so that is the acceleration, it's right, it worked, it was brilliant. But there was one serious problem here, because he'd made those little squashed o's into zero, nothing. And that meant in the middle section, what he's done is divide zero by zero. And as any mathematician will tell you, once you do that, you're in serious trouble. Uh, zero on the top, obviously, is, 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 is naught, is zero. Zero on the bottom, it's infinite. Put one on top of the other, and it's indeterminate. It just does not have a value, it's meaningless mathematically. Um, and he was right. I mean, uh, you know, uh, the bishop was correct. He wasn't just uh, trying to make trouble. This is a serious problem with the way calculus was first formulated. Um, They didn't get around to sorting it out for another couple of hundred years. It just worked, so they used it, even though it was actually wrong. Um, But it worked. And the way they got around it in the end was basically to say... Uh, we're going to deal with the limit. So what we'll say is we will never take our little thing that gets smaller and smaller thing all the way. We'll just take it as far as we need to take it and know that if it went all the way, then you get this answer. But we're never going to go that far. So it'll be all right. Frankly, it's still a bit of a fudge. But that's how, math, how calculus is still done today. Uh, the fact is it works. So you can get away with the fudge. It's worth doing. Now, up till now, infinity um, had no particular way of referring to it uh, mathematically. There wasn't a, a symbol for infin- infinity because it was never used. Once you've got calculus, it's useful to have a symbol. And purely by coincidence, at about the same time as all this was happening, uh, another mathematician, John Wallace, who actually would be really famous had it not, he not been a contemporary of Newton and sort of got hidden in the limelight of Newton, John Wallace um, came up with a symbol for infinity, which was this one. Um, nobody has a clue why. It's called the Lemner skirt. Uh, and he just writes in a book about conic sections, so about 3D shapes, he just at one point says, let this represent infinity. And nobody has a clue really why he said that. But ever since then, that's the symbol, the skirt that we've used for infinity. One or two, two people have theories as to why it might be the case. Um, some think it has a vague, resemb- vague resemblance to this. Uh, this was the Roman symbol for a 1,000 before they stole M from the Greeks, um, so, if you remember, myriad was the Greek word for um, 10,000, but the, the, the M was used for 1,000. Um, and they, for, for some reason, they used this before. And, and some people have said, well, is a big number, and it looks sort of a bit like that. I think that's pretty unlikely, frankly. Uh, other people have said, well, omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. This is a small omega. Uh, it represents sort of the ultimate, as far as you can go. And, well, it's sort of like that, isn't it? Well, possibly... Uh, frankly, it might just be that it, it sort of goes on forever, it's a loop, but a circle's too boring and confusing to survive. that as infinity, so we'll give it a twist. It might have been as simple as that, we just don't know, but that's the symbol that we use. Now, apart from Galileo, uh, really as ever standing out from the crowd, nobody had thought about the real infinity um, since the ancient Greeks. Um, the fact is, Aristotle's potential infinity was the one everybody was dealing with, this this um lemniscate symbol is about the potential infinity something you don't ever get to this idea of limits you just use it but never get there and it wasn't really toward, till towards the end of the 19th century that somebody started to think about infinity itself got back to galileo's thinking about infinity And his name was georg or george georg, georg cantor who was a german uh, and he pretty well went mad partly as a result of thinking about infinity Um, Cantor was born in 1845, and he spent most of his working life at the University of Halle in Germany. Now, Halle is famous for its music. It is not famous for its mathematics. And his idea was very much that Halle was going to be a stepping stone to take him to one of the great mathematical universities like Berlin. And it should have done, because he was a brilliant mathematician. But his ideas on infinity particularly were so extreme... Uh, that other mathematicians, one, one in particular, blocked his way and stopped his career, stopped him from getting there. Now, Cantor's first great contribution to mathematics, which is going to be important for thinking about infinity, was the mathematics of sets. That's S-E-T-S, sets. Uh, and Cantor took this idea and embedded it into the heart of mathematics. Sets are very simple things. They're basically just collections of stuff. So I can have the set of everything that looks like an orange, the set of everything that's called Brian, the set of the first 10 things you thought of when you got up this morning. It's just a collection of things. But it's a collection that can be used in a very specific way in mathematics. And Cantor used it, for instance, to build up the basics of maths. So he use this theory of sets in order to demonstrate where all things like addition, subtraction, multiplication and so forth could, can be derived from. He, he proved that, effectively, this was fundamental. Now, I'm not going to go into set theory in any detail. I don't need to, really. But I do need to uh, put across one particular aspect of set theory, which is a property of a set called its cardinality. And if you've got a set of stuff, the cardinality is basically just how big the set is. And it's very simple and has a very useful property. Now let's imagine I've got two sets. One is uh, the legs on my dog... And the other is the horses of the horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, uh, and what I can do is basically work through the legs of my dog and pair them off with the horsemen of the apocalypse. And if I can do that one-to-one, so basically I use up all the legs and all the horsemen, I can say they have the same cardinality. They have the same size, the sets. And the interesting thing is I can do that even if I don't know how many there are. As it happens, I do. There are four, but I don't need to know that. As long as I can pair them off, without ever knowing how many there are, I can have say they have the same size. Now, that sounds tra- trivial when you're dealing with legs and a dog, and I ought to say, by the way, that no animal was hurt in the making of that slide. Um, but it's not trivial when we start thinking about infinity. Because infinite sets, so the set of numbers that is infinite, has some very interesting properties. Remember, Galileo is playing around with this idea of the whole numbers and their squares. Uh, you've got the set of the integers, so that's basically the set that has every single integer, and we've got the set of the squares. And we can pair them off, just as I paired off the legs of my dog with the horseman. So I can say they have the same cardinality. These two sets are the same size, even though one's bigger than the other. And in fact, um, Cantor showed that it was, it was a necessity that if you're dealing with infinite set, that it will have subsets, so bits within it there are of the same cardinality. That always happens with infinite sets. Um, and we'll come back to how really useful those are in a moment. But once you're dealing with the real infinity, if you like, rather than potential infinity, Cantor decided you need a new symbol. And he came up with a different symbol from in some infinity, not the one that we usually use. He used the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. And specifically, he referred to the size of the counting numbers, the cardinality of the integers as Aleph null or Aleph zero. Basically saying, this is how big that is. But that means, the suggestion is, that's the basic infinity, there might be something bigger. Now, most people would say, how can you possibly have something bigger than infinity? But remember, he was a mathematician, and mathematicians take nothing on trust. It has to be proved. So until he checked, he was only happy to say that this is the basic infinity, there could be something bigger. Um, So what he set out to do was show, to prove whether or not there were bigger infinities. And amazingly, you can actually follow his proofs uh, without any mathematics whatsoever. Um, Admittedly, there is some math in there that we've sort of hidden away, but the fact is you can. And he started off by thinking about every single fraction and said, is that the same cardinality? Is that the same size of infinity as the counting numbers, of the integers? And he imagined writing out a table with every single fraction in it. And across left to right, I've got each of the numbers on top going down, I've got each of the numbers on the bottom. So this table goes off all the way to infinity, I've got every single fraction. In fact, some of them I've got an awful lot of. If you look down the diagonal, every single one of the diagonal that I've coloured yellow is 1. So I've got an infinite set of 1s in there. But the fact is, I've got every fraction in existence in this table. And what Cantor did was find a way to move through the table systematically. And as soon as he showed that you could find a way to move through this table systematically, and that's why there is a little bit of maths that we're not bothering with, the fact is that you showed it was the same size, it has the same cardinality. Because you can imagine each of these steps being paired off with one of the integers. So you've got step one, step two, step three, step four, and it takes you all the way through the table. It's the same size as the integers. And again, it's not surprising. You expect all infinities to be the same size. Except Cantor then, uh, sorry, I was say by the that, way, not, that's not the only route. that was the route he used. You can pick any route as long as you can get a one-to-one correspondence with the integers as you move through it, they are the same size. But he then went on to look at a different set of numbers to see if they also were the same size of infinity. And he would prove that they aren't. And again, we can see that proof visually. It's really quite amazing. What he imagined was writing down every single decimal between 0 and 1. So every single decimal um, fraction. that could possibly be between 0 and 1. Uh, And you might think, OK, same again. I can just pair them off. But he proved that you couldn't. And what we need to do is look at a series of entries in this list, one after the other. Now, I can't start at the top, because the next one after 0 is 0.0000 all the way to infinity 1, and then 0.0000 all the way to infinity 2. Uh, and I can't write that down because my, my screen isn't big enough. So what he imagined doing was just scrambling those numbers up. So it's exactly the same list, but they've been scrambled up in a random order. and It goes on forever down there, every number between 0 and 1. And he said, okay, here's what we're going to do. I want you to look at the first decimal place of the first number, the second decimal place of the second number and so on, and I'm going to add 1 to each of those. So Let me just highlight those. You looked at those digits and you said I'm going to add 1 to each of them and if it's 9 we'll just make it 0. So you did that and got this new set of numbers which is just 1 added to those. I'm going to literally just pull that out at the bottom. Uh, so that, those are the original numbers and these are my 1 added to each of the yellow numbers. And that red number is a very interesting number because it's not the first number in the table because it's different in the first decimal place. And it's not the second number because it's different in the second decimal place. And it's not the third number because it's different in the third decimal place. I've written down a number that isn't in the table. What we've effectively done is shown there are more numbers between 0 and 1 than it's possible to write down in a list that you can pair off with the integers. It's bigger than the list of the integers because there are numbers like this that just aren't in that list. You can't do it. It's bigger. Now, this is where it gets slightly mind-boggling, but basically what he showed was this was a bigger infinity than Aleph null. It's more, because, as I say, you've got a number here. If, it was, if, I could, if I could write down the whole list, yes, I could pair them off, but here's a number that won't fit in the list. It just isn't there. It's more. It's extra. It's bigger. And that was quite mind-boggling. It still is quite mind-boggling. Um, I just want to show you one more visual proof Cantor did, because he was so clever, and these visual proofs because um, having thought about every number between 0 and 1 which is a bit like if you imagine a number line these number lines at school these days it's a bit like a ruler so you imagine sort of all the numbers between 0 and 1 written out in a long line it's, it's one dimensional and what he said was okay what happens if you take all the numbers all the points not along a line but in two-dimensional space or three-dimensional space um, and is that the same infinity? Uh, I'm just going to show what you did with two dimensions. It works with any number of dimensions you want to play with. And <laughs> we normally define a point on a space using two coordinates. So I basically measure along one side and say it's so far up that axis. And I measure along the other side and say it's so far along that axis. Uh, and so we call them coordinates or latitude and longitude or whatever as a way of defining a position. And we always get told it takes two points, uh, two numbers, to define a position in a two-dimensional space. And Cantor said, no, that's rubbish, you only need one number. Uh, that's how? Well, he said, okay, look at these two numbers. I'll colour one red just to distinguish them. All I'm going to do is interlace those two values. So basically, you have a new number that alternates the numbers in the two. And that is a totally unique number that only refers to that one point in the two-dimensional space. You don't actually need two numbers as you're always told to define a point It's much more convenient, frankly, to use two numbers, but you don't need them. Uh, You can define a point with just one long decimal. And because of that, he showed basically that it's the same cardinality as all the numbers between 0 and 1, because you only need all the numbers between 0 and 1. And you can do that for any number of dimensions of space. So Cantor was doing pretty impressive things with cardinality, but he had some serious problems. He had two problems, basically. One was, uh, how big was the infinity of all the numbers between 0 of 1, which was called the infinity of the continuum? Um, was it the next aleph up? So aleph 0, aleph null, is the infinity of the counting numbers. Was this aleph 1? He tried to prove that, For years and years and years and failed, and that's one of the reasons he was pushed over the edge to madness. The other was that another mathematician, Leopold Kronecker, spent his whole career trying to ruin Cantor's career because he hated this idea, this whole business of thinking about infinity, uh, and was quite successful, frankly, at ruining Cantor's career. Cantor died in 1918 in a mental institution, Um, and it's really quite sad that part of the contribution to that was this idea of trying to work out, is it the next infinity up? Is it LF1 that's all the numbers between 0 and 1? Because some years later it was proved that it was a total waste of time that he ever even thought about that. And this is, this is a statement I often have to say twice so I can get my mind around it. But basically somebody called Gadal later proved that it is impossible to prove whether or not it is the next infinity up. Okay, so you can actually prove that you can never prove. There are some things in maths you can actually prove it's impossible to prove, and this is one of them. Um, you can prove it's impossible to prove whether or not it's the next infinity up. We'll never know. Can't tell. Now, a few mathematicians would be as fussy uh, as Chronica, uh in dealing with these problems uh, of infinity, but a lot were a bit mm, not quite sure about this. And when you start thinking about it, about Is infinity real or just a mathematical game? It is quite a difficult one, to which there is no obvious answer. Frankly, most of the answer is we don't know. So if you look at some of the obvious things that could be infinite, is the universe infinite? We don't know. We know it's at least 93 billion light-years across, but that's as far as we can see. We can't see any further, we've no idea how far it goes on after that. It might be infinite. Some people still do think it was infinite. Some people in the past have thought it is. Some people think it isn't. Einstein thought it wasn't. Um, We don't know. Not sure. Uh, Other things. Does time divide up infinitely, as Aristotle said? Probably not. Chances are time sort of gets a bit granular. If you divide it up small enough, it's a bit like atoms of time. You can't divide it up anymore. Is the most likely possibility, although we're not quite certain about that. Uh, So is infinity real? Is it not? I'm not quite sure but it certainly is fascinating and fun to think about. And to finish off, I just want to show you two of the paradoxes in infinity, the reasons why, for me, it is so fascinating. Uh, one of them is really quite simple. Uh, it's something called Hilbert's Hotel. And it's a very simple, interesting possibility. It's a hotel with an infinite set of rooms. It's got aleph null rooms. So it's basically got one room for every of the integers, each integer, uh, all the way up to infinity. Um, and what we imagine is that uh, you're a visitor to this hotel, you come along, and you want a room, and the um, the guy behind the desk says, sorry, can't let you have a room, it's entirely full already. Uh, but you're a great mathematician to so say, it's no problem, all you've got to do is move the person from room one into two, two into three, three into four, four into five, all the way through the hotel, one's now free, I've got a room, it's not a problem. Because that's how infinity works. Uh, and you're very happy, uh, you go back to the clerk at the desk a little while later, and he's panicking again. And he's panicking because a bus has turned up with an infinite set of Australian tourists in it. <laughs> um, and he has no clue of what to do with all these Australian tourists. But luckily you're a great mathematician, you say to him, it's very simple, all you do is move everybody into the room with a number that's twice the room they're in at the moment. So one goes into two, two goes into four, four goes into six, and so on. Now, your current guests are just in all the even numbers rooms, the whole infinite set of even numbers rooms, and you've got all the odd numbered rooms to put your Australian guests in. No problem. And that's one of the joys of infinity, the the way that uh, Galileo discovered first the arithmetic doesn't work the same way as it does with ordinary numbers. The other thing I want to briefly show you uh, is even more mind-boggling, and that's a little mathematical thing called, uh, sometimes called Gabriel's horn. And it's a very simple mathematical structure. It's basically just uh, a graph of 1 over x for every x bigger than 1, uh, and then it's rotated around the axis. So it looks like a very long hunting horn. It goes all the way to infinity, getting thinner and thinner. And to demonstrate why it's so interesting, I just need to turn it over. And what I'm going to do is come along with some paint and fill it up with paint. And that's quite easy to do. Because although it's infinitely long, it only has a finite volume. You can, it only takes pi units of paint to fill it up. And that's a bit like, you remember my 1 plus 1 half plus 1 quarter plus 1 eighth. Even though it's infinitely long, it only has a finite sum. And similarly, even though this horn is infinitely long, it only has a finite volume. But the really weird thing about it is though its volume is finite, it's just pi, its surface area is infinite. So this means basically if you come along with a paintbrush and start painting it, you'll be painting forever even though you can fill up the whole thing with just pi units of paint. It has an infinite surface area and a finite volume and that is mind-boggling and that's why I think infinity is so wonderful. Now inevitably this has been a sort of high-speed gallop through infinity. Uh, There's a lot more about it uh, in the couple of books I've got with me on infinity. Uh, I have a, a minor Brian Clegg bookshop here. If anybody's interested, look at the end. Very happy to sell you some books. Uh, But I'd like to finish off hoping, A, that you found it, if not infinitely interesting, at least (laughs) inspiring, um, and that you might have some interesting questions. So thank you very much.